Um, hello everyone and welcome to Things That We Find Interesting. Um, we've got the first of our interview series today um, where we essentially take Andy walking through his life, comes across some people who have potentially a slightly interesting story. Uh, we've talked before about my one interesting story when me and Robbie did our, our, our cycling trip through Europe. Uh, that's me now exhausted of interesting stories. So I've got to come on to other people. Now, I when I asked Paddy, who's come on today, about this to come onto the podcast, he didn't think it was very interesting. However, I think that's because he's lived and breathed it and it's normal to him. For me, it was very interesting. I had a lot of questions. I wanted to know more and I never had a chance to really ask him. So what we're going to talk about today, we've got, we're joined by Paddy and Paddy's background, I'll probably use the wrong terms here, but essentially worked as, I believe the term is a roadie, with uh, music bands on tour. So he was part of the enabling crew for several bands uh, going on tour across various different countries. And I thought, wow, what on earth is that actually like? I've got an image in my head that's probably completely wrong. And so today we're going to talk to Paddy. Paddy, say hello. Hi there. Paddy's first time coming on a podcast. Um, it's always a little bit nerve wracking, but it hopefully should be uh, some quite good fun. And, and we're keen to hear your stories. Um, so... First of all, I, I use the term roadie. Was, was that the right term? Like, give, give like a layman's explanation of, of, of what you did, how long you did it for, just some some, some opening kind of uh, facts about it. So, so roadie is normally the easiest way to explain it, but that I suppose probably conjures up images of people, sorry, like logging about amps and equipment and doing the sound checks and all of that. And whilst that's one element of it, it wasn't necessarily the side that I worked in. Uh, so I started off through multiple different levels of it and working in different sides within that industry, uh, all the way from starting off as picking up litter at festivals through to working security and logistics. Um, so roadie's probably the easiest way to explain it, but is a bit of a kind of catch-all terms what um so uh, first of all like uh, can you say which, which bands you, you you toured with or was it was it various ones yeah so, so it's various we had a couple that we worked with for numerous times i got to do a couple of shows with leonard cohen um did a couple of shows with motorhead but a lot of the things we would do is a lot of the major festivals across the uk and europe are pretty much owned by a handful of companies and so most of them are are interlinked it's it's a little bit like how Coca-Cola, you name the drink on the shelf, they're probably a subsidiary of Coca-Cola or someone. Probably not red. Yeah. So it's some, something similar to, to like that. So you do show after show, festival after festival, and they were probably connected in some way, but it wasn't necessarily you were on that tour. Um, but when we were out in the U.S., we worked with a band called Terrible Buttons, and we did quite a few few shows with um, Larry's Flask. Um, not sure if they're ringing any bells. What sort of genre? Me- I, I don't recognise it. What sort of genre music today? So, so Terrible Buttons were once described as horror folk, which is a genre I've, no, ne- a I've genre. never wow, heard before. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean. Is that like they just have the, like witches and goblet? Like, <laughs> no, like, I, 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 I think the band were quite shocked to hear themselves be uh, be described uh, like that. Um, but the, so some of the companies I work for, we would 
basically it was whoever was the job. So it was a variety of different genres. So for example, you know, doing shows with Motorhead and then doing shows with Leonard Cohen and Westlife. You know, it's quite a wide spectrum. How on earth did you get into this in the first place? Um, I met a bloke in a smoking area in a student union um, in about 2008. And it was one of those things where it was pissing down with rain and everyone was like huddled together in the corner. And this guy just got chatting. We, you know, became mates. And he had worked for this company a couple of years beforehand and basically had said to me again, when it came to the summer, it was like, well, Paddy, you know, if you want to spend your summer traveling around doing some festival work, I can probably help you out with that. And and that's where I started, to be honest. And the very first job that I was doing was litter picking at a festival, which is soul destroying. How big was like the? How many people are on like a litter picking team for like a? What, what, what festival is this? A festival we've all heard of? Uh, yeah, it's. it's um, I'm going to try to avoid naming too many but a, of them. A big, if, a if big boy, a big boy, a, a big, big, big major. And how many litter pickers are there for something like Glastonbury? So uh, there's hundreds, hundreds of thousands of staff. Like, so Glastonbury itself is classed as the second largest city in Southwest England for five days. Um, because of the sheer size of it. And Glastonbury is a bit of an, an anomaly to most other festivals because of its size. And every... the the day Glastonbury finishes, the next day they start planning the following year. Um, so it, it's, it's quite a big operation that goes into that. And so, it's, so that's, that's a little bit of a different one. But... <sighs> Large elements of that type of crew, so the people who are doing the bins, doing the litter, that type of thing, vast majority aren't paid workers. They're doing it for their ticket. They'll do like three or four eight-hour shifts, and then that's them done, and they go off and enjoy the rest of the festival. Uh, companies that we work for, we were working full-time, you know, doing 12-hour days when I was doing that element of things. And... How many yeah, bags of uh, how many gash bag, how many litter bags did you pick up in in a twelve hour session, Paddy? Would you say a lot? <laughs> um, so so you get uh, if you think of a big great big biffa bin, that's called an eleven hundred because it's uh, eleven hundred liters, oh, no. um, and you yeah <laughs> yeah, and you'd be uh, you you knew you'd been working in that element too long when you had bin keys on your key ring. <laughs> Um, Do you still retain those keys today, so you can like. You know, they're, they're, prob- they're probably somewhere. Skip dive a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a. Uh, it's good for if you want to sneak someone into a festival. Um, <laughs> you can fit a couple of people in one of them. Um, and how did you? Yeah, but, this? How did you take the next step in the career ladder at this? So, so, so that particular company didn't. They have numerous different roles throughout um, different festivals. So they they had some, and it all depended on the contracts that they got. So they'd either be doing, you know, the refuse and recycling and all of that, or they'd start off with like um, car park stewarding and stuff. And um, when I started working within like the stewarding element, there was one particular boss who was very good and um, sadly passed away a number of years ago now, uh, but was probably one of the best people I've ever worked for. And he 
he he was the one who would promote people properly and, and work well. Whilst that company in the whole within the management had a lot of cliques, and he was a little bit different to the rest of that. So you didn't have to be in with the cool kids, as it were, to start doing other things. And basically, he put me on different jobs, took me on different tours, and then I ended up moving away, moving into different side of the work, uh, more towards the security and the logistics side. But that was because I'd started working in his team. Okay, nice. So one year sort of slumming it, you know, at the coalface, and then now you're in uh, you're in the sort of planning teams. You're you th- you're thinking a little bit more, a bit more logistics. Um, yeah, yeah. What 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 are the what are the big what are the big um, what are the the things that are difficult about setting up a music event that the layman wouldn't think about? You know, what what are the surprisingly like tough bits you have heard was you have to jump over? It's it's waiting for equipment because so. If, if you were to travel, the, the UK's got a fantastic music scene. It's got a, a wonderful um, festival scene. But if you were to travel through, throughout all of the festivals across the UK, without realising it, you'll see the same stages pretty much everywhere. And that's because they finish at one, get collapsed down by the stage crew, and then get moved to another. So, for example, when we would do... Um, uh, I will mention this. So when we would do uh, work at Leeds, we'd be on site for about four weeks. And for the first two and a bit, it's pretty quiet and you're just doing little bits and pieces here and there because you're waiting for things like V and T in the park to finish. They get collapsed down and then basically every single piece of kit from that festival turns up. And so you, so you, can't, you can't actually start building the main elements and there's just until something else finishes a couple of days out mm. how do they so i assume there's no kind of big gov or is there a big governing body like you know uh trying to get the all these all these festivals that are using the same kit and trying to make it sure that sure that they're not booked at the same time or is it that they just naturally evolve to, to be so eyes from each other so like, it, it it depends on who as, as i said before a lot of them tend to be owned by by the same like kind of yeah, an umbrella company and it's it's kind of booked from there really yeah so yeah so the your own your own festival actually even if you had even if you had the artists you had the real estate and you had the money you might not actually physically be able to get the equipment because it's, it's it's booked out for, um, for someone else i mean you, you definitely could do because there's there's other companies out there it's not all all owned by it's not just one company that owns it because so, so the events company that kind of like the umbrella company doesn't necessarily own all the kit. It is hired it out in the same way that, you know, if we wanted to have uh, an event at work, we'd hire a marquee from a marquee company. It, I mean, that marquee is going to be used at 400 events over the summer. It's kind of the same principle. So you can order a stage. You just, you know, you may not get, the specific massive big stage that's used at so many different other events okay so the difficulty of you know uh, there's it's not a long build time for a lot of this stuff it's going to rock up you know a day a couple of days before Mm -hmm. um and just the fact that there's a there's a there's a a limited amount that's being traded between different people and and imagine getting broken and, and, and things like that in use 
what else what else are, are the big kind of logistic problems that that you'd fa- you'd face um dealing with people <laughs> yeah is one of the bunch so as soon as people start turning up you're entirely responsible for absolutely everything so think about everything you're going to do over a course of five days you know you're washing facilities eating facilities sleeping living drinking eating uh, yeah all of that effectively needs to be dealt with and, and you're fully responsible for that so if it if something if one element doesn't work it very quickly becomes a major problem and, and there's a number of documentaries on uh, netflix things like that at the moment showing about what happens when these don't get organized properly and don't get but so so woodstock 99 is one of them um the fire festivals another one um that's a good example of people who were out of their depth and hadn't actually booked and planned things properly uh so you kind of hint that wild creatives are maybe not the most organized people i wouldn't comment on that I, I'm a wild creative, so I, I will organised. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there, there definitely needs to be very, very strict elements of this is going to work, this isn't going to work. It's not a, oh, it's going to be okay on the night type thing. Um, you know, I can think of so a specific show quite a long time ago now where the, in the, like, the family area for whatever reason they couldn't empty any of the portaloos so you've now got overflowing portaloos with a whole campsite of family with kids and that who can't use the facilities and that very quickly becomes a huge issue it's the idea of making sure that you've got a you've got a plan in place but you need to have your backup plans for when yeah how, how did you guys plan I, I love looking at how different organizations plan stuff um you know the military has some very specific models it uses to, to, to make complex plans with lots of lots of functions contributing to it um you know th- there's much more simple stuff out there as well how did you guys plan did you use things like red teaming um to kind of like so, check check that the plan did work so i was never really in that position to be part of the the major planning elements with the exception of one event um so we were doing three three events in a sligo in ireland um so three one day events back to back and it was quite clear when we turned up that they hadn't thought about the proper management for moving people out via coaches so there's a number of tickets had been um sold this event that were coach tickets as it was quite a common thing and um, these days but where they had put the coach park you had a two and a half mile long road that could was only big enough for one-way traffic so you'd have coaches at the main road they travel down you then have to shut the road down let them pick up everybody and then travel back down and it became complete chaos and i think we probably got the last people out of that event at about 3 a.m and considering that that finished uh you know half past 11 was 
pretty horrendous. Uh, so as soon as it finished that night, we're then in in a plan conference going, right, this isn't going to work. And it was a reactive opposed to a proactive. And that's only really been my experience of being in the planning cycle, as it were. Um, most of the time I was at a lower level than actually being in the position where we were planning the whole thing. And, and is that the role you did for the rest of the, the other four years? Did you stay in that role or did you... No, so so moved moved away from kind of like the logistics side of it to more into the security side. Interesting. Okay. All right. Um, I, I, before we go on to the security side of things, um, what is it like? And did you have any interesting observations between different countries and how they handle festivals? What they're like? Were the crowd challenges different for like an, an American audience uh, versus a British audience? Do they have sort of different wants and needs? Um, uh, was there more red tape in certain countries than others? I'd, I'd love to see that perspective of it. That's that's quite interesting. So the so so the the Irish are far more willing to listen. So whenever we were in Ireland and you happened to deal with Crocker, they were far more willing to if you explained why you were getting people to do something or asking them to do something they're far more receptive um and you know some of these things may come as sweeping generalizations and i, I can't give any reasons as to why they're the case but they're just my observations from when we're working they're, yeah they're, they're, they're probably yeah if, if we were to say that's the case for all those people but it's interesting to hear your perspe- perceptions um you know even if they are a bit generalized yeah. um the Americans are really demanding. Uh, if they if they want customer service in America is such a huge thing. Um, like you know you you know you've immediately landed in America because you're buying a cup of filter coffee and there's a tip jar on the table um, where you basically poured your own coffee and there if they want something and they, and they want it immediately. Um, and the customer is always right, no matter what. So they were always very demanding. You sort of like comes onto you guys as essentially staff, as enablers of of, of their service, their festival, what the product they're paying for. You are, yeah. Um, even though you're not necessarily in that kind of like, you know, customer facing role, you're, you're you're part of that. That's really interesting. And how how would that manifest yeah. themselves? Would that be that um, people would expect, you know? A higher ratio of uh, of toilets to to number of festival goers, or would they just sort of something goes wrong and they want it solved right there, right now? So they they won't queue. They won't queue for anything. Yeah, you know, considering that we've just had probably the world's biggest queue for five days in the UK, we've lived up to our own yeah, British stereotype in that respect. Um, but they they don't want to wait for anything, and if if there's an issue they want it sorted immediately and it's irrelevant of whether you're the correct person like you're wearing the right uniform so i'm shouting at you and you are going to fix it whilst you've just got paddy you sat there going like i'm just selling t-shirts for the back (laughs) you know i've i've got no control over this venue whatsoever you know i i can't help the fact that you know the toilet is clogged that's so did you almost have to have really robust like team kind of communication systems when you're dealing with that so that you know junior guy young guy 
gets problem thrown at him that he doesn't know how to solve and can't solve he can like fly yeah someone who can yeah you do so so when i started having my own teams that i was in charge of i, I used to give them like lines to take effectively um so good example of when you were if you had a on the end of a festival and you've got everybody leaving yeah people don't get frustrated in the cars they're tired they're hungover they haven't slept for you know four or five days really and they all they want to do at this point is just go home and you know people are cutting each other up in the cars and they would always be complaining go oh why haven't i moved you know what's taking so long so you just give them a line to take and you know which whether it's true or not if it kind of gave the the punter the answer kind of like they wanted then then that was the case yeah so we we used to say to people like you know uh, the the main road is so backed up due to unforeseen roadworks even if you get to the gate you're not going to move i love that and i love that human side of it um and it's i've seen it bouncing around quite a few kind of thought you know thought thought provoking things recently where people have talked about the 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 twitter not twitter the um the uber example of where i think it's probably overhyped but they basically say by uber putting a map on their taxi service this made people like super relaxed and even though the taxi was getting to them in the same amount of time there's something in our human mindset that we really like certainty even you know that's that's kind of high up in our priorities versus you know shorter time frame so if you can tell someone oh there's a reason why you're waiting here they're gonna relax even though they're going to stay there the same amount of times if they didn't know uh it's yeah. it's like a, a human factor i love that and and also that that side which we've talked about in previous podcasts about a lot of leadership stuff is about empowering people giving them the freedom to make decisions make allowing them to like think up creative solutions for themselves and i think that works really good when you've got an experienced team you're leading and you've got maybe a slightly older team you're leading i actually think when you're leading young junior inexperienced people they they actually maybe don't want that so much and they actually would, would appreciate a bit more of a, a a kind of paternalistic maternalistic style of leadership where you do give them a, a line to take you give them a sort of a bit more of a steer i think that's a great point about being cognizant i'd imagine a lot of young people working for you in in, in those sorts of roles well yeah i mean when you know i i was 18 when i first started doing that um and yeah, yeah, I definitely found it easier to deal with people the more I went through it and the more I kind of like got brought in as to the reasons why. But yeah, certainly when I first started going through it, I wanted to be told, uh, you know, shit, what do I say to someone, you know, someone who's shouting in my face because, you know, they've got a higher car that needed to be back, you know, in Norfolk in two hours' time. Is that one? Well, first of all, you know, you should, should have fucking left earlier. <laughs> but when, and again, as as I moved into the, the security side of things, you, you're dealing with people in a very different way. And, and a lot of the time you can be very aggressive and having that more experienced people kind of give you the guidance of going, well, you know, this is when you can try and reason with someone who's being exceptionally aggressive. And this is the point when it's like, reason's not going to work. You have to go down other routes and um, being given that 
guidance quite early on was yeah so what, what was that pretty sound advice when did you when did you what was the point at which you're like i can't reason with someone anymore did you have any like, so, markers in behavior yeah so you, so you have certain markers when somebody's turning from bravado shouting at the bouncer you know hold me back hold me back to when actually you know this this is potentially going to turn quite violent and a lot of them tend to be kind of like physical traits um and the way that body language and things like that uh is rare is going to come out of like yeah anything like that's going to come out of the blue and you'll also get a lot of people with who if they're just repeating themselves so if you're dealing with someone who's being quite aggressive and they're upset and no matter what you say to them they're just saying the same thing over and over again you, you're not going to reason with that person because they're not listening and they they that. probably don't want to that. listen if you like watching trashy fight videos on uh <laughs> on youtube whatever and when somebody's absolutely raging and they just like saying the same thing again and again and again and again and you're like you said that like 10 times it must be something yeah. in the human psyche if it just locks down onto like a very simple concept and like yeah say, at that point you know you, you stop trying to have a, a a debate with someone yeah you're you're, you're not going to bring bring that person down until they're willing to actually have a conversation with it even if it just because someone's shouting doesn't mean they're not willing to you know actually listen it's as i said you know when they become tunnel visioned on something okay interesting um right i you know what my first thoughts are when you told me about this roadie life i probably um jumped not to ro- to what roadie actually is and probably jumped to to, to groupie <laughs> no, <I'm joking. laughs> um, but the party side of it is really interesting because you know as a layman i hear about going on the road with a band and i'm like well one of the draws for you as a young person is these like wild rock star parties is that a thing it it is um they tend to be more so with people who are really start like brand new and starting off um and then as you progress the big ones tend to be a a the novelty wears off b it's fucking exhausting um you know if you're if you're on a three-month tour and you're going to get smashed every night and then and then then you're going to, you're going to work like drunk, you know by the way everyone yeah. something else. <laughs> um if you're because you because you then you've then got to go to work and there's there's a brilliant line from um it's iggy pop who says how it's work masquerading as fun and because yeah you you see the side side of you know a performance live shows fantastic people doing everything but at the end of that night everybody's exhausted the crew's exhausted the artists are exhausted and you've then got to potentially travel eight hours to the next venue and do it again the next day or you're going to continue doing things and so yes it does happen but it's, it's not sustainable all right so everyone's tired i, I want to know about some wild stuff that you, you told me you hinted some wild stuff does happen Spin me, spin me a yarn of some wild tales of things you saw. <laughs> or took part. Um, 
I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I'm totally honest. You don't have to say specifics. You can just, you know, blank out. So there, there, there used to be a, a group of guys that I worked with who would, if they were going to have quite heavy nights, they would drink what they referred to as a jumbo salted, which was half a bottle of like Coke, Pepsi, so a soda, then fill it with whatever spirits they could get. And then they pull their baggies into that bottle and neck it between them. And that, that was them. And then basically they then wouldn't sleep for the best part of two days and would just work continuously and buy continuously. Would you, would you guys party with the bands? Or is it like there's the it, it, it all it, yeah it all depends on on who they were so the the bigger name artists no they they're not there but some of the some of the smaller ones are all down to earth and you know it's just because someone's big and famous doesn't mean they're a nice person um but yeah so yeah it's, I got to play cricket with Goldie looking chain. Oh, <laughs> that was, that was quite fun. People, rappers, you know, do. rappers do. Yeah. Um, that was quite fun. But then, you know, we worked with Jarvis Cocker once and he, yeah, he, he didn't want to know. Um, there's a, I'm, I'm, actually, I shouldn't be naming and shaming really. Um, there, there's some, some other, <laughs> Yeah. A lot, a lot of the like bigger people would know who you were anyway, Paddy. So no, no, he he, he absolutely <laughs> wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> of course, he wouldn't. Um, yeah, but we, but an entire crew worth of people had to move, like basically move their pitch from where they were because he wanted to be next to the big oak tree. So you know, forty, fifty oh, people okay. had. Oh, well, yeah, that's that's why we all put our pitch around it, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, and then you, you see some of like the the PAs get treated really poorly, um, like the whole diva type thing is 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 pretty awful to to see some of that. Um, but yeah, like for, for the most part, no. If, if it's a small, smaller act, yeah, they're they're keen to you know get to know people and, and shout. But the bigger ones, not so much. Okay, interesting. I, I was hoping for more TVs getting thrown out of hotel rooms, but I'll settle for that. Yeah, and um, yeah, unfortunately not. Right, so but there, there's there's an issue with all of that now. So so that idea of you know the you know the who trashing up hotel rooms and things like that. A, everything is on social media now, absolutely everything. So if you're seen to do be doing something like that, A, is you're, you're going to pay for it, and the money in the for touring bands isn't the same as what it was by any stretch. I bet bands mainly make their money now through merchandise and tours. The, the album sales stuff is it, it's nowhere near uh, what it used to be. And also, most people, if they see, you know, like trashing a hotel room or somebody's car or something like that, like, just look like a dick. <laughs> you know, I, I saw someone at a festival where, so the higher up you are in the staff and the production, then you know you've made it when you get given a buggy and you've got your own little golf cart to, to drive around there, first of all. I never made it there. I often had little bikes that I'd have to cycle around. But 
I saw, I saw somebody once, you know, a piss up band member, nick one of those buggies, you know, drive it round to go, look how cool I am. And everybody just stood around going, like, you just look like a twat. And what is now going to happen is you're going to get blacklisted from this festival. And that band isn't going to play that festival again. People are into people. Are, people are over the antics. I suppose in the you know the uh, the who the sort of sixties era. Maybe those antics were fresh. Maybe there were new people hadn't done them mm. before, and so they were novel, and therefore maybe had some value. But now it's like, yeah, people have done that for a while now. Yeah, you know, maybe. And and you probably you're probably just going to get sued as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Liti- uh, the society has got more litigious. Um, mm. Right, we've got a couple of minutes left, Paddy. If you can, what drove you to leave? Why did you have a career change? Uh, so there are other things I wanted to do. Um, there was there was a career that I always wanted to go into, which is, is what I'm doing now. Um, and realistically, unless you're at the the top end of the job scale, just yeah, the the money isn't there to be done. Um, young young and. It, it it is, and and I didn't want to be the fifty sixty year old who's still doing the same job, who's the you know the aging hippie in the corner type thing, um, you know. So so eventually, you know, I shaved my mohawk off and handed in my punk card. Can we get that mohawk photo for the the podcast socials? Can we? We'll blur out your face. Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? Yes. Um... <laughs> Okay, well, fascinating. You know, um, I, I love to uh, have these kind of little interviews and ask people about parts of their lives that they probably don't think are very interesting, but are certainly interesting to me because they're, they're very different to what I've done. Um, it sounds like it was, uh, you know, a great career for a young person. You learned some amazing kind of like life lessons, um, which are probably, you know, you, you can, you've brought through forward into your future career. Um, I, I love the human side. I love that, that side of, 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 of how people affect um even a quite a kind of like logistical role um uh yeah so thanks for coming on Paddy. i hope you enjoyed it first time on a podcast yeah no it was uh, good to be here brilliant um okay guys um that's the end of this episode if you're enjoying the pod so far give us a make sure you, you, you favorite the pod uh put it on your alerts and share it as widely as you can we're, we're brand new um but we're keen to get in as many listeners as we can thanks everyone <laughs>